You're listening to a sermon from New Harvest Church in Salem, Oregon. We believe that you were created for connection to Christ and a community of his followers. This sermon is an extension of our desire to become more like Christ by engaging God's word within our weekly gatherings. If you are in the area, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday. You can learn more about New Harvest and our ministries at newharvestch.org. Well, good morning again. Welcome to New Harvest. My name's Tyler. I'm a pastor here at the church. Glad to greet you and welcome you to the second Sunday of Advent. Thanks to the Kaufmans for sharing so beautifully about joy. A couple things to let you know about before we jump into our subject of joy today. The first is, we talked about this last Sunday, but we take part in Advent conspiracy. We want to conspire against the way that our society does Christmas. And so we want to uh, worship fully, we want to spend less, we want to give more, and we want to love all. They're kind of the four tenets of Advent Conspiracy, and we've been going through prayers leading us along those lines as well. And one of the ways that we participate in Advent Conspiracy is by giving less so that we can, spending less so that we can give more. Freudian slip, maybe, hopefully not. Uh, so this year we're participating in collecting all of the money that we're spending less to give together collectively to build a well in Haiti. And a well in Haiti costs $10,000. That's a lot of money. That is more money than we have ever raised in Advent Conspiracy. So we were like, eh, should we go for it? We went for it. Now, $10,000, a lot of money, right? But there's more than 100 families who are a part of this church. If every family spent $100 less on Christmas so that they could give $100 to this well, we'd have $10,000 like that. It'd be easy. So if $100 is a lot more than you spend for Christmas, then don't give $100, right? The purpose is here not to make you broke. It's to help you spend less on Christmas, on buying stuff to give more and help us to build a well in Haiti. A couple events happening in the next 10 days. Next Saturday is the Women's Christmas Brunch happening right here in this room. If you are not signed up for that, you can sign up for that in the lobby in a little over about 10 days from now, nine days, 10 days. On Tuesday, the 14th, we have a family event happening in the gym called the Gingerbread Bash, and you can sign up for that in the lobby as well, or you can contact me or Karen or message us, email us, whatever. Uh, Last thing to let you know about is... uh, To make everything happen here on Sunday mornings takes technical volunteers who are in the back right now watching over you and making sure everything happens. And we've been kind of getting by with just a few people doing everything almost every Sunday morning, and we really need to expand the group. And so if you have any desire at all to help us, you don't need to have any skill. You don't need to know how to do this or that. We will train you. But if you have any desire to help us kind of make Sunday mornings happen. For those of you that are at home, for those of you that are in here, it takes volunteers. So talk to me or talk to Celeste or write on a connection card, which is in the seat back in front of you, and let us know that you'd love to help, and I will be in touch with you because we'd love to have you get involved. All right, that's enough announcement talk. Let's jump into our subject of joy. In the 5th century, a theologian named Augustine penned these words that I think are fundamentally true. He said, every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. 1,300 years later, a guy named Blaise Pascal, who is a French mathematician and a theologian, said something pretty similar. He said, all men seek happiness. This 
is without exception. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What Pascal is saying is that often we choose what things on the outside look like very obviously negative or detrimental things. But we pursue them because we think that they'll actually make us happy. And I think that's absolutely true. None of us really pursue sinful things because they're like, oh yeah, you know, I really want to do a bad thing today, so I'm going to choose something sinful. No, often we think that sinful thing is actually going to make me happy. And so we pursue it, even though it's going to be bad for us. But happiness gets a bad rap in Christian circles. What we talk about is happiness is this fleeting, kind of circumstantial reality. And what we need as Christians is to be people of joy. Joy is eternal and lasting and deep and enduring. It sustains. And so we talk about joy and happiness as being two very fundamentally different things. And I have actually stood on this stage and preached on joy back on Thanksgiving Eve 2012. I talked about joy and how happiness and joy were two different things. And the example that I used is this iPod right here. And some of you are some of you are like, what on earth is this? Well, this is a second generation iPod I bought in 2003 off of eBay. And I could put 5,000 songs on this iPod. And all of my friends, they were like, you know, creating DVD or CDs. They could have like maybe 15 songs on a CD if they were lucky, if they really squeezed them in tight. Or maybe they were like me back in eighth grade. I had a cassette player, and so I'd be listening on the radio on the song that I'd want to come on, and I'd hit record on the cassette, and I'd wait till the song was done, i hit stop, then I'd wait for the next song that I wanted to record, because then I could make a mixtape on a cassette tape. Well, this, 5,000 songs, all right here, and this thing doesn't work anymore, but uh, it has a lot of Coldplay and Damien Rice and Dashboard Confessional, for those of you that are big fans back in 2003. Uh, if you're like, I have no idea who any of those bands are, it's okay. It's not even relevant, but just had to throw it out there. So I had this for a few years, and I loved it. It was awesome. I could have all my music right here in my pocket. But then I had a friend who got a Nano, and a Nano was like the size of this screen, maybe even smaller than that. And then I had a friend who got a black iPod. Mine was white, and it was, just wasn't very cool anymore. And then I, I had a friend that got one with a touch screen, a touch screen. I had this little wheel here and a play and a pause button and a menu. That's all I had. He had a touch screen. He had, like, apps that he could use. I know. It was crazy. Unbelievable. And so this, this device right here that made me really happy and made me feel like I was really cool and way ahead of the curve with technology started to actually make me feel unhappy because I was relying on this thing to help me be cool. And it was now making me uncool because all my friends had all these better things. And I was stuck with this really old brick that absolutely no longer works now 18 years later. And the point that I made in using this as an example is that if we put our happiness in things like this, happiness will be fleeting. But if we have joy in the Lord, joy will last forever. And we can have it no matter what the circumstance is. And I have studied this subject since I spoke on this in 2012. And I have to say that I think I was wrong. I think... I was wrong. I don't think that there's a very distinguishable difference between happiness and joy. There is between how we pursue it, maybe poorly or better, but not a distinguishable difference. I've read the book by Randy Alcorn. I've read a book by Barnabas Piper. Both get into the subject of what is happiness and how do Christians pursue it. 
And I don't think that happiness and joy are in competition with one another. There are 2,700 passages in the Bible that use words like this. Joy, happiness, gladness, merriment, pleasure, cheer, laughter, delight, jubilation, feasting, exaltation, celebration. And depending on the translation that you read from, a lot of those words are somewhat interchangeable, especially blessing and joy and happiness. And most translations are just used kind of interchangeably. And many of the Greek and Hebrew words that we rely on uh, make it difficult to distinguish between those three words. And Randy Alcorn in his book even gets at some of the historical usage of happiness and joy and uses the example of Charles Spurgeon who said, May your Christian life be filled with happiness and overflowing with joy. Charles Spurgeon is using happiness and joy interchangeably. And so I say I was wrong because I was talking about happiness and joy being different. And I don't think that the Bible or Christians throughout history have used those terms differently. They're one in the same very often. What we need to think about is not necessarily happiness versus joy, but how do we pursue happiness and joy in a way that allows it to be lasting and eternal and existing in the hard times and in the good times. That's what we need to look at. And so this second Sunday of Advent, we're talking about joy or happiness or both at the same time. And we titled this series, Looking Back, Moving Forward, because every week we wanted to take an Old Testament passage about the Messiah, about the story of Christmas, to kind of be the background that which we use to more greatly situate ourselves in the place where Israel was thousands of years ago, longing for a Messiah, in this place of waiting, of wanting deliverance. That's where they were. And so by looking at an Old Testament passage, we can kind of situate ourselves in their place. And often I think Christmas is like sentimental and like cozy and like wrap yourself in a blanket and sit by a fire. What Advent does is it reminds us that this season leading to Christmas and its celebration is about being expectant. It's about being awake to the things of God and learning from Him. And so last week we looked at Micah 5 and we talked about the subject of peace. And today I want to look at Jeremiah 31. And so if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. It's just a little past Psalms in Isaiah. You find the book of Jeremiah. And as you're turning there, just a little bit of a background on the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet from a small, obscure town just a little ways away from Jerusalem. So he was a little removed from Jerusalem, but he understood the way that the city worked. And he was living in a time when Egypt and Babylon overcame Jerusalem and the Israelite people and sent them into exile. And this took place over like 30, 40 years that he lived there and was a prophet during these times. And part of the reason I wanted to look at Jeremiah is because Jeremiah is a contemporary of Daniel. And this fall, we looked at the story of Daniel and the teaching of the book that he provides and the story of his time in Babylon. Now, Daniel lived in Jerusalem, and he was taken at the age of 15 or 16 to Babylon. He lived in exile. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet in Jerusalem when Daniel was taken to Babylon. And the, prob- the difference really is Jer- Jeremiah was a man who was rejected. Daniel was a man of success and built, you know, a an incredible life for himself in Babylon. Jeremiah was the prophet speaking negatively about Israel 
And he was rejected. He was rejected by his hometown. In fact, in the whole book of Jeremiah, there is a count of two people, two people who liked what Jeremiah had to say and responded to him. Two people. Now, I don't know about you, but if your life, your entire life, its whole ministry, you have two people respond positively to you, that would kind of be a negative thing, right? Well, that's the amazing thing about Jeremiah is obviously he didn't have any earthly success of getting people to respond to him. But he did persevere over and over and over again. His message was rejected, and he continued to move forward, feeling like that was what God was leading him to do. And so most of the first 29 chapters or so of the book of Jeremiah are Jeremiah reminding the people that they are being disobedient and that they need to respond to the Lord differently and to live out their covenant with him or that God is going to do something bad. Then, right in the middle of Jeremiah, there's four chapters that highlight God's plan for restoration. And one of those chapters is Jeremiah 31. And so we're going to be in Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 14. And we'll look at something at the end of the chapter a little bit later on. But Jeremiah 31, 7 through 14. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. Make your praises heard and say, Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. They will come with weeping. They will pray as I bring them back. I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. Hear the word of the Lord, you nations. Proclaim it in distant coastlands. He who scattered Israel will gather them and will watch over his flock like a shepherd. For the Lord will deliver Jacob and redeem them from the hand of those stronger than they. They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They will be like a well-watered garden, and they will sorrow no more. Then young women will dance and be glad, young men and old as well. I will turn their mourning into gladness. I will give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. I will satisfy the priests with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord for us today. And like I said, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 34 a little bit later on. But I think what this teaching from God through Jeremiah to the Israelite people reminds us of is that oftentimes what we long for is still in the future. And what this passage is highlighting is how we can be happy and joyful in the present, even when what we want is far off into the future. Jeremiah is telling this to people who are about to be taken from their home. And he's reminding them that that's going to happen, and it's going to last for 70 years, and then you'll be able to return. Now, the reality is most of those people who are hearing that are going to be dead by the time that they're brought back to their homeland. And so they're never going to experience that joy that God is highlighting for them in Jeremiah 31. And yet he still calls them to be joyful people. And so how can we, in the present, when what we long for is in the future, experience Happiness, And I think the passage highlights a few things that are really helpful for us. The first is to look up. 
look up. And I think you see this right at the beginning of the passage. Verse 7, sing with joy for Jacob, shout for the foremost of the nations, make your praises heard. How does God begin this encouragement for the Israelites? He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Things are going poorly for them. They've been overcome by foreign nations and they will continue to be overcome by foreign nations. Many will be uh, forced from their homes. Some already have. How can you find happiness despite all of that? God says, look up. Now, this might seem like a small, fairly insignificant point, but I think it is absolutely diametrically opposed to how we typically pursue happiness in our world today. How do we find happiness today? Look within. Look within. Look within yourself. How do you find happiness? How do I feel? How are things in my life? And once we check those boxes, once those are good, well, now I can be happy because things are good. We don't do it any other way. And a way to describe this a little more academically would be that we are an Epicurean and hedonistic society. Those are like psychological and philosophical terms saying that we are driven by pleasure. We want comfort. We want the absence of fear and pain. We want comfort and pleasure. We want life to feel good. That's what we're driven by. Scientists who study the brain would say that we're driven by dopamine. Dopamine is a chemical that gets released in the brain that allows nerves within your body to communicate with one another. And they are what help your brain realize that you enjoy something. And so when you're watching a beautiful sunset or when you're eating that really delicious Christmas dessert, that is dopamine in your brain telling you, oh, this is good. I like this. Well, the problem is that we're becoming addicted to dopamine. There's a book written this year by a psychologist at Stanford University called Dopamine Nation. And in the book, she says, the relentless pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain leads to pain. Now, she's kind of highlighting the reality of our drug addictions. They lead to pain. But I think you could talk about this more broadly. Our pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, hard things, it only leads to bad things. So the way that we pursue pleasure and trying to manufacture dopamine hits in our brain is not making us happier. It's making us not happy. We're frustrated, and we actually become more anxious people. So how do we pursue happiness? Well, we say, well, I look within myself, and I want to become fully who I want to be. And so we look within first, and then we kind of look around, and we say, who's going to affirm what I'm saying I want to be? I look around, I look for affirmation. And then at the very end... Then we look up. We say, okay, God, now that I feel really good about myself and other people have affirmed me, I can thank you and I can praise you. So we reverse the whole thing. We look within ourselves first rather than looking to the Lord. And is it any wonder why we are an anxious and fear-driven society? How do anxiety and fear come about? It's some problem in the future coming into the present. The possibility of it is what causes us to fear. That thing that could happen makes me worry about the present. And what instead we can do is look up. And when we look up, we can begin to remember the past of God. You've been at work in all of these ways. And now I can recognize that you promised to care for me. And so that thing that might happen in the future has no power over me. I will not let it hold here because God's faithfulness is greater. That's what happens when you look up. One of my favorite parts of the Christmas story is at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. 
And it's actually kind of a negative example, but that's why I like it. It's the story of Zechariah. At the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he talks about Zechariah, who's an old priest who's been married to his wife, for Elizabeth, for a long time, and they have wanted to have children. They have prayed for children, and they do not have any children. Well, the angel Gabriel shows up to Zechariah in the temple while he's doing his duties as a priest, and he tells him, that he's going to have a boy, and his name will be John, and he's going to do all these incredibly miraculous things leading to the Messiah. An incredible moment. And I think if Zechariah was able and willing to see it, he would just be overcome with emotion. But what does Zechariah say to Gabriel? He asks the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So his first reaction is not to look up to the Lord, it's to look it within and kind of help God see like the reality of the situation is, I'm old, she's old, this is not going to happen. What are you talking about? You're crazy. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. So he's highlighting, you are not looking up. I am from the Lord. I've been sent by God to bring this to you, and you are missing it because you're looking within, not up. Often we look at our circumstances before we look to the Lord, and we simply miss out on what God is doing because we're not looking for him at all. We're preoccupied with other things. Well, thankfully, that's not the legacy of Zechariah. John is born and as after John is born, Zechariah is recorded with a song that he writes. And at the very beginning of the song, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And it took nine months, ten months of John being born for Zechariah to come to his senses and to realize, I need to look up before I look within. But it's not only looking up that is highlighted of how do we find happiness That would be great, but it doesn't really acknowledge the reality of our lives and the place we find ourselves in. After looking up, then we can look around, and also we can look within. And I think this is what Jeremiah 31.8, the next verse, highlights. It's just the reality of life. It says, "I I will bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the ends of the earth among them will be the blind and the lame, expectant mothers and women in labor. A great throng will return. What Jeremiah's account here through the Lord seems to be saying is that he is not ignoring the reality that's facing them. Some of them are in exile. Some of them are from the far ends of the earth. Some of them are expectant mothers. Some are in labor. Some are blind. Some are lame. Here is the reality of life. There are things happening and they're not all good. And God is going to show up in that way. And what it shows us is that happiness is not just a feeling. It's God's presence showing up in the circumstances, whether good or bad. Happiness doesn't ignore the circumstances. We find it within the circumstances that we're in. Some of you saw my post on social media a week or so ago about this, but it's a, a great example for what I was just talking about, so I wanted to share it again. Uh, Fourteen years ago, on a Friday afternoon, I was in seminary at the time, finished my classes, and I was getting ready to leave, and my wife called me, Rose. We'd been married 11 months at this point. And she called me, and she was on the side of right between Highway 26 and 217 in Beaverton. 
And she said, I don't know what happened, but my, my tire like exploded or popped or something, and I lost control of the car, and it was raining, and I spun around, and I'm on the shoulder, and I got to get a, a tow truck. And I was like, well, call Les Schwab, because they tow for free, right? Because I don't want to spend any money. And uh, so she called Les Schwab. They said, oh, we don't, we don't tow if you're on the highway. We only tow if you're on a road. Uh, but you could call this company. That tow company came and gave her a tow, and so it was all taken care of. The problem was it was $100. $100 to get that tow to get our car taken off. And I think there's a picture of it up on the screen as well. And I, that, that moment was just devastating. We'd been married 11 months. We were both in school part-time. We were working part-time, just trying to make ends meet. And $100 was a huge, enormous amount of money to me at that time. And I was just overwhelmed with feeling like, God, I'm, I'm pursuing everything I feel like you wanting me to do. I'm seeking after this. And this is just, this is rude, right? This is not helpful to me. We didn't have $100 at the time. We started talking about who, who could we call to, to ask to borrow money or, you know, should we spend less on groceries? At the time, we joked, but it was true. We went on dates at Costco so we could have hot dogs for like, what is it, $1.50 or whatever? That's where we went on dates to save money. So we, we had no money. We did not have $100. And so I was overwhelmed all weekend, frustrated, mad with God over what was happening, not feeling his sense of provision. And I was a janitor at a church where we had been for just a few months. And I'd been working as a janitor for two months at that point. And I showed up for work on Monday, and there was an envelope in my box with a $100 bill in it. And I just started weeping. And I'm, I'm not a crier. Those of you that know me well, I don't, don't cry very often. I was just overcome. It was this very vivid reminder from the Lord that he blesses through the hard things. That's the best way that his blessings come, is through the hard things. And the truest test of faith is believing that he will sustain you even when the circumstances say that things are going badly. That was what that $100 represented to me. And I don't know who the, to this day, I don't even remember talking about that with anybody. I don't know who the $100 was given to me by. I do have an idea of who it was, but I do not know for sure even to this day. And that $100 bill story for me has kind of become what the Old Testament describes as an Ebenezer. An Ebenezer is a monument of praise that like the Israelites built near the Jordan River as they were entering into the promised land. It was a way to remember God's provision in the past so that as you move forward into the future, you remind yourself of all God has done. That's what the $100 bill was for me. And as times have gone on in our lives as a couple and as a family. There's been other hard financial times and other hard circumstances. And you wanted the, the story that I bring up time and time again is that $100 bill story. Because it just overwhelms me with this reminder of, no, God will take care of us. He promises to take care of us. It might not always work out like I envisioned, but he will take care of us. And so it's recognizing God's provision. So that's, that's how we see God working in the circumstances when they're bad. But what about when they're good? Well, Paul is speaking in Acts 14 to some non-believers, unbelievers in a city called Lystra. And he says this, which I think really highlights the reality of happiness in good circumstances. He says, God, he has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven 
in crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and it fills your hearts with joy. And some of these translations, their joy could also be gladness or happiness. There's other ways that it could be described. But he's speaking to a group of unbelievers, people who do not believe in Jesus. And he's talking about God's provision in their lives, that it is God's common grace that has allowed them to have food, to have rain for their crops, and to experience joy and happiness in their lives. And oftentimes, I think we focus on joy in the negative and finding happiness when things are bad. That's, that's when the hard work begins. But I think sometimes finding happiness in the Lord is also difficult when things are good because we can tend to ignore him. And what Paul is highlighting is that God is the universal source of happiness. Whether you believe in him or not, God is the universal source of happiness. That's what Paul is saying there. And so when when we interact with others who are going through hardship, it can be easy to kind of say, you know, I rely on God as my refuge in difficult times. But the same thing, when somebody's going through a time of blessing, you can ask the question of them, where do you think that comes from? And they'll probably have some answer of, oh, you know, I worked hard and I built this for me. And you could say, well, I think that comes from God. And it can be an opportunity to kind of bring the gospel into a season of blessing that somebody is experiencing. And so we look up, then we, we look around at our circumstances and we see how God is meeting us in the places that we find ourselves. And then lastly, we look beyond Look beyond. Look beyond the reality that we find ourselves to where are we going? Where are our lives headed? And I think the best way to emphasize this is by looking at Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, which are known as the New Covenant. And so toward the end of the chapter, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Just an amazing passage right there. And is known, as I said earlier, the new covenant, where God establishes this is how I long to and soon will relate with my people. It will not be through sacrifices. It will be because they know me. And how will they know him? Well, that comes through what Jesus does on the cross for us. And so those future promises for the Israelites provide them present hope and joy. And as I was thinking about this reality, future and present, I thought about Daniel 2. We just went through the book of Daniel. and thought about Daniel 2. You remember Daniel 2 was about a dream. And the dream what Nebuchadnezzar had was about a statue. And there's this kind of big rock that goes right into the statue and blows this huge statue into dust. 
that's blown away with the wind. It just disappears. Well, the statues represented by all the nations and Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and nations to come after it. And the stone was represented by the kingdom of God, which smashes into it, breaks it. And then that stone becomes a mountain that overtakes the whole earth and lasts forever. It's this picture of the future. Here's what's coming, Nebuchadnezzar, is essentially what the dream is. And it's God's way of saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you have built a life of earthly accumulation greater than any man in the history of the world up to this point. It is amazing what he built, and it's all going to be dust in a matter of seconds. Just dust blown away. And so the dream was God's kind of invitation to Nebuchadnezzar to choose a better way, to look to the future and change the present. And it took several decades, many, many decades, and several dreams. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar responded to the Lord in that way by looking at the eternal weight of where his life was headed, and he chose to change the present. And the same can be true for us. Through the work of Jesus, on the cross, we can, by faith, enter into relationship with the living God, the one true God, the God who made you. And when you do that, your future in him is secure. It's secure. You can know where you are going. Last week, we talked about having peace with God, and it's because we have peace with God that our future is secure. And then we can be happy in the present, knowing this is where I'm headed and nothing can stop that allows us to have happiness and joy in the presence, whether circumstances are good or bad. Barnabas Piper describes it this way in his book on happiness. He says, hang your happiness on the right hooks. Hang your hopes on God's promises. Fear him and obey his commands. And in this, you'll find happiness now and forever. Happiness doesn't have to be fleeting. It doesn't have to be based on circumstances. It can be based on the Lord. You hang your happiness on the right hooks. And so how does this relate to all of us in this Advent season of 2021? We could probably all, if we went around the room, talk about all the negative reasons why we have not experienced very much happiness. Well, I think about something Jonathan Edwards says in a sermon 400 years ago or so. He said, every Christian should be happy. Every Christian should be happy. And I think you could also say every Christian should be happy always. Now, this doesn't always have to be jovial happiness. We're talking about deep, rooted, centered on the Lord happiness. And he talks about three reasons why every Christian should be happy. And so we talked about looking up, then look around, then look beyond. And I think his answer highlights those three really beautifully. He says, every Christian should be happy. Why? Number one, all the bad things will be, turn out to be good. All the bad things will turn out to be good. Romans eight twenty eight says that God causes all things to be for the good. All the bad things will turn out to be good. And then secondly, he says, all the good things will last forever. All the good things will last forever. In Ephesians 1, it talks about how the heavenly blessings are for eternity, the present and eternity. All the good things will last forever. And then lastly, he says, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And our future for that best is secure in Jesus and what he's done for us. And so we get to experience that best. The bad things will turn out to be good. 
the good things last forever and the best is yet to come. And that, friends, is why we can be happy and joyful people. Amen? As we transition into communion, there's a psalm that I think highlights all of this so beautifully. Psalm 126. And I just want to read it, and then the team's actually going to come up and lead a song based on these words. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, which is like a desert. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And the picture that we're given there at the end is those who come out with tears, having seed, unrealized potential in their hand, will come back no longer with tears, but songs of joy and sheaves, whole plants from those seeds that have been grown and birthed by the Lord. That is the picture of joy in the Lord. Even if you don't experience it in the present, that can be the reality that you taste even now because of the Lord's provision. As I thought about this subject of joy this week, uh, I thought about circumstances of you know people in the church that are not great. And I thought, how, how can... How can I speak about joy in a way that makes sense to somebody who's going through hardship? I thought about the Dreyers, I thought about the Friesens, I thought about the Thomases, and other families. And I, if you're sitting there like, yeah, you haven't mentioned my thing, well, I'm thinking about you too. And the difficult thing, the difficult things that many, most of us face, day in and day out, the, the things that are deep within us that hold us back from experiencing that joy that we really long for. And I guess my hope in speaking about joy is that we're reminded that joy doesn't come from these things. Happiness is not found in these circumstances. Sometimes, yes, it's great to experience a beautiful sunset and eat a tasty dessert, as I talked about. Those things are great, but that's not true happiness. That's just circumstantial. And sometimes those are good and sometimes they're bad. The happiness that we can have, whether things are great or not, comes from the Lord. It's given through him. So we situate ourselves underneath him. And so our benediction uh, for this morning comes inspired by that, a joy given by the Lord. And it goes like this. God brings the blessing of joy. May you find moments of laughter and bliss in the midst of suffering and distress. May you cherish those times and may they sustain you. May your joy-filled and sacrificial actions be instrumental in sustaining our community and loving our neighbors. In the face of hardship and uncertainty, may you know the faithful presence of the God who provides. Amen? Amen. Have a great week. God's blessing over you.